Hello, friends and enemies. I am Daniel McCarthy, and it is December 21st, 2020, the solstice, the day of the Great Conjunction, and the eight-year anniversary of the end of the world. I'm sincerely glad that you're listening to this, and I hope that the fact that you are listening to this means that you've already listened to all of the wonderful content available at storyofnowhere.com. But never fear, if you're not familiar with my work up to this point, here's what you can do. If you go to storyofnowhere.com, you'll find the little book that I wrote for which the website is named, which is all about utopianism. In that book, which you can get for free, I introduce to the general public the idea that the pursuit of the quote-unquote perfect societal arrangement has been the single worst thing that human beings have ever imposed on each other. Well, I guess I don't quite put it that harshly in the book, although I happen to think that that's true, but basically the idea is that throughout history, different groups of people have come up with these spectacular visions of what society could be, but that, because this vision is so great, just about any action could be justified if it moves us closer to that ideal. Hence, in the Middle Ages, in pursuit of a universal or Catholic Christian polity, the tortures of the rack and the stake were justified, and in fact necessary. In the French Revolution, in the name of liberty, equality, and fraternity, the systematic murder of anyone who didn't toe the party line 100% was necessary. So they said, What you wind up with in both cases, even though on paper these two utopian models opposed one another, what you wind up with is a whole lot of dead people. Dead, regular people. What you never wind up with is the perfect society, the utopia, that those measures were promised to produce. So that's where my book is coming from, and I think, hopefully, that I make that message pretty clear for regular people who vote and watch CNN or Fox. I also introduce some solutions to this historical problem, solutions that are doable and maybe even practical. At storyofnowhere.com, you'll also find a podcast, the Story of Nowhere podcast. I'm really trying to make all this easy to remember. The podcast goes deeper into all the problems and solutions that the book merely introduces, or I should say, it will do so. The podcast is only in its infancy. At the time of this recording, I'm in the middle of a series outlining the history of critical thinking. Critical thinking is, of course, one of those practical solutions I introduce in my book, and I thought that it's so important as a solution that it should be addressed in detail right off the bat in the podcast. So instead of making a dry series on how-to logic, I thought it would be useful and entertaining to start off with a series on how logic and reason and critical thinking have developed over the millennia. In that series, you'll get a taste of how people's ideas of what critical thinking is have changed over the years. But more importantly, you'll see the through lines. You'll see how critical thinking has stayed the same, and hopefully learn how to consciously apply your critical faculties when you understand that reason is very much a human tradition that we have all been born into. At this point, I've only gotten up to the Middle Ages, a period in which rationality was thought to be reserved only for a small class of ecclesiastical experts. But by the end of the series, I think you'll see that critical thinking is a birthright that belongs to all of us, and this idea is even implied by medieval philosophers, although they may not have known it. I think that virtually all human beings have the potential to be rational, even if many don't always apply that potential when they should. As the late great John Taylor Gatto said, genius is as common as dirt. 
I would humbly and slightly cynically add, yes, but we've been monocropped with GMO corn called school and media. Hopefully my series will help to reintroduce some healthy soil into the minds of those who are receptive. So please, get down with that series as it progresses. There are just two more episodes to go, and be sure to stay tuned to the Story of Nowhere podcast feed for future episodes on subjects such as imperialism, propaganda, cybernetics, and a whole bunch of other fun things directly related to the problem of utopianism. But I have gathered you all here today, not for the next episode in that series, but for the next episode of In Pursuit of Utopia with Brett Vinat and myself, previous episodes of which can be found at storyofnowhere.com. This one was originally released on August 22nd, 2019. Isn't that crazy? The title of this episode is Noble Lies, because we spend, I don't know if it's the majority of the show, but a good portion of it, we spend talking about what, if anything, must all people in a society believe in, whether it's true or not, if that society is to function. The noble lie is a concept that goes back to Plato, but in this show we're talking about it in the context of the Age of Enlightenment, which, by the way, you'll hear more about in the next episode of my Critical Thinking series. Brett and I also talk very generally about Enlightenment philosophy itself, and then more specifically, how it translates into its own novel brand of utopianism. This will set the stage for the next two episodes of In Pursuit of Utopia, which get into the American and French revolutions, respectively. Those are two of my most favoritist episodes of In Pursuit of Utopia that we've done, so you're definitely going to want to stay tuned for those. But first, you've got to listen to this episode so that the next ones will be in their proper contexts. Now, I'll just be honest with you up front and tell you that there are a couple of moments in this show you're about to hear where I definitely did not give my best performance. It's nothing crazy, like I forgot who I was talking to or anything like that. Just a couple of little things that I wish I had been better prepared for or had maybe even taken a bit more time to think about before opening my yap. But... It is what it is, and those little imperfections in our past performances should motivate us to do better next time, not to hide or to give up. But now I'm being dramatic. Maybe you won't even notice what I'm talking about. As always, thank you for listening, and for sticking it through my slightly longer-than-usual introduction to an episode of In Pursuit of Utopia. Make sure you go to storyofnowhere.com for all my stuff, subscribe to the podcast on Podomatic, Podcast Addict, Spotify, and I think even iTunes now. And get on over to schoolsucksproject.com to see all the great work Brett's been doing for something like 11, 12 years now. Highly worth your time. Enjoy In Pursuit of Utopia Episode 3, Noble Lies. Oh, say, do you see what I see? Congress sitting here in sweet serenity. I could cheer, the reason's clear. For the first time in a year, Adams isn't here. And look, the sun is in the sky. A breeze is blowing by, and there's not a single fly. I sing Hosanna, Hosanna. Come ye cool, cool, conservative men Our like may never ever be seen again We have land, 
Cash in hand, self-command, future planned. Fortune flies, society survives in neatly ordered lives with well-endowed wives. By the 18th century, the great discoveries of the 17th were digested and their implications drawn. Important medical advances were being made in fighting scurvy and especially smallpox. In 1783, two Frenchmen, the brothers Montgolfier, demonstrated their discovery that heated gas inside a fabric bag would cause it to rise. The Montgolfiers went to Versailles, and while the king watched, they sent up a large balloon carrying a sheep, a rooster, and a duck. A couple of months later, the first manned flight sailed over Paris, and by 1785, an American and a Frenchman had flown across the English Channel. The possibilities of science were obviously infinite, no wonder that everybody who was anybody dabbled in it. Voltaire studied mathematics and brought Newton to the general public. Another encyclopedist, d'Alembert, produced vulgarizations of science and philosophy for fashionable ladies. Diderot did chemical and anatomical experiments. So now we're in a world of science, of mechanics, a material world which it's important to exploit, to develop, in order to make people better and better off, in order to make them happy, which is itself a novel notion. We are cool, we are So, Danny, in our first attempt to start recording, I welcomed you back, but thanks for having me back, I guess I should say, on The Pursuit of Utopia. How you doing? Not too bad. How about you? I'm doing well. So, last month, we kind of did a cliffhanger. I think we both thought that when we picked up this episode, we would be traveling across the ocean back to the United States, where we spent some time in the previous episode in the 17th century. But we're going to get a little bit more of a running start today before we return to America, right? Yeah, yeah. I think that when we ended last time, we alluded to the Illuminati connection that I'm sure everybody is just dying to know more about. Unfortunately, I think we exhausted the subject last time. I'm not sure that there's much of an Illuminati connection to the United States. So That's a relief. Right. (laughs) I think it would be appropriate before we do get into America as a utopian system, we should look at the actual philosophies that gave rise to the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution, which would, of course, be the European Enlightenment. So with that being said, I think it would be advisable for us to go over to England, France, and Germany, 
and see what sort of ideas were being were being developed there by leading intellectuals of the day. And the running start takes us to a destination, just so people know where we're going today, of America itself as a utopian idea, right? And then I guess there'll be, as we wrap up, some discussion as to whether or not we think that uh, utopia was achieved, was ever achieved, even just uh, as a flash in the pan. But we'll get to all that in a little bit. Indeed. So where would you like to begin? Well, I suppose we could begin just by going over some basic fundamentals about what the Enlightenment was. Most of your audience probably is very familiar with the ideas behind the Enlightenment. But just to give a general overview, the era itself pretty much encapsulates the entirety of the 18th century. Although some people say that it began with Francis Bacon's Novum Organum and ended with Kant's Critique of Pure Reason. Mm -hmm. Um, That's a little too specific for my tastes because, of course, Historical periods can't just be summed up that tidily. Yeah. I think for the purposes of our conversation, we can just say that it's 18th century European thought. Generally speaking, the Enlightenment philosophers advocated a distance from more dogmatic religious political structures and instead favors favored something more based on reason. So their epistemology was less based on deferring to the church fathers for what constituted truth and was more about using their own five senses and their reason, which was innate to human beings, according to them, to discern what was true about the world and what could we do about it to make it better. Mm -hmm. So in that regard, you can see a direct link between the Protestant Reformation and the Enlightenment in that the Protestants shook off the Catholic dogma by saying that every man is his own priest. Let him interpret scripture on his own. But of course, with the Protestants, that turned into sectarian organizations where it wasn't every man was his own priest. It was, we'll pick one man to be the priest for this little village, and he will dictate to us. So we've got Calvinism, Lutheranism, et cetera, et cetera, the Anabaptists, all these different Protestant groups that in the end, wound up deferring to another authority, albeit a less centralized one. And I think that a similar thing occurs in the Enlightenment. And briefly, to go back to the previous episode, uh, in regards to the Illuminati, the Weissop's Illuminati, theoretically, placed at the peak of human values, reason, Mm -hmm. and five senses to learn about the world and to do something about it. which all sounds very good, except that just as with the Protestants, that turned into something, just turned into a more decentralized authoritarianism. Um, and maybe I'm skipping ahead of myself a little bit here, but an example of this within the Enlightenment itself would be enlightened despotism. Um, yes, yes. Yeah. And what's interesting to note about enlightened despotism, uh, well, first I'll define it for anybody who's not familiar. It's simply the idea of an absolute monarch who has adopted the philosophy of the Enlightenment, but instead of, you know, abolishing his throne and saying, we're a republic now, he basically becomes a benevolent dictator in his own mind and says, well, I'm going to rule this country by force, but I'm going to utilize the philosophy of the Enlightenment. I'm going to apply reason. I'm going to be empirical about things. And hopefully engender within the people at large a sense of brotherhood 
property rights and freedom. So it's an idea, at least as old as Plato, right? right. You can find some support for it, even though maybe not to the same extent Plato supported this idea. Voltaire, who is somebody we're probably going to talk about, was kind of in that ballpark. Maybe not like maybe more like constitutional monarchy, which I know if if that's a, a it's not quite a synonym of enlightened despotism, but it's it's in the same vein, I think. Yeah, I, yeah, I think that they're maybe they're not the same species, but they're the same genus. Yes. Okay, and, I'll I'll take that. Sure. And it you brought up Voltaire, so it, it's worth mentioning that he was actually personal friends of Frederick the Great of Prussia, who is like the archetypical enlightened despot. They yeah. were friends for years. In fact, Voltaire lived with him for a period of time because he was kicked out of France. So we'll probably get to enlightened despotism a little more as we move through the episode. But I think it's interesting to note right now that although when we think of the Enlightenment as a philosophical movement, well, I'll speak for myself. When I think of it, I think more of guys like John Locke or Voltaire. I think of English and French guys, yet really the only enlightened despots you can find, there are a couple exceptions, but the vast majority of them, and definitely the most prominent ones, were either Prussian or Russian. Mm -hmm. It's kind of puzzling. Uh, and I think maybe this sort of leads to yet another vein of conversation that we can explore probably in, an, in a later episode where it's easy for us to look at the United States Constitution, to look at the democratic monarchies of Europe, this sort of progressive world state embodied by the UN, the, the sort of sense of the neoliberal world order. We can look at that and say, this is very clearly an outgrowth of the Enlightenment. But maybe what's not so obvious to people is that the socialist movements starting in the late 1800s, or I'm sorry, the late 1700s, moving all the way up to now, are just as much outgrowths of the Enlightenment. And in these specific regions where you found rulers attempting to force these good Enlightenment values, these are the same regions that wind up having the most, at least in, as far as Europe is concerned, the most devastating experiments with socialism. Obviously, obviously, Prussia, Germany, and Russia. Mm -hmm. So getting back to just the basics of what the Enlightenment is, theoretically, it seemed to center around the idea that the individual has value in and of him or herself. And I'll add her for us. We can sort of modify it and say that generally speaking, individualism means man and woman, you have value. And there were some touches of it in in some of them. Like I know Franklin was Franklin's like philosophy of education, which I've read a little bit about. Uh, you know, he talked about in the 1700s that uh, people, whether they were slaves or freed slaves, should have access to education, as should women. So he, in in some respects, maybe not like completely or systemically, but was against uh, the male chauvinism idea. Yeah, and we have to we have to think about these things in the context of the time too. It would be sure. rather shocking if suddenly in 1730 some guy just said, "You know what? Get, give women the vote. Everything." You know, I mean, of yeah, course, yeah, yeah. We it would be nice if somebody did that. It would certainly make history a lot smoother. And you know, hey, while we're at it, same with the slavery thing. There were a lot of people who were anti-slavery, but generally the the progression is slow. It's a it's a matter of degree. So I think that the, within the Enlightenment, there was probably more 
quote-unquote feminism used as a general term than there had been before. So Uh, Agree, yeah. So that's another aspect of it, the idea of egalitarianism, again, generally, because it depends on which philosopher you look at and what degree of egalitarianism they were really after. So let's see, we've touched on individualism. Another thing would be property. The importance of property was something that was really stressed by Enlightenment thinkers because at that point, they had recognized, obviously, that wealth and economic power is power. I mean, you look at European history and you've got monarchs. Well, what makes them monarchs? They're not better. They're not even stronger. I mean, most hardworking dudes could easily beat the shit out of that little bastard. Right. It's a matter of wealth, that he can hire people to defend him, that he could build these walls around himself. But also, Danny, uh, alliances with religion, right, in in many cases, because – God, I forget. This might have been like one of one of Stefan Molyneux's speeches way back in the day. But how do how do weak old men control strong young men? Right. Mm. The idea of deferred gratification. Right. Because you can't like say, oh, well, follow me and your life will be better. Because then like, what if it's not? Well, okay, you lied. Now we'll kill you. But follow me and your life will be better after you die. Uh, There's less of a debate to be had about that. So, uh, you know, I, I and I think that's also one of the threats of the Enlightenment and the turn towards reason. If that is a popular trick, certainly throughout the the Middle Ages, uh, and you know, I'm, I'm I'm saying it's a misuse of religion. I'm not casting religion in an entirely negative light, but using religion for power in that respect, um, you know, if you if you buy that idea, that seemed to work for a long time. Yeah, it's undeniable. I think that. That's certainly one aspect and a very important aspect of religion, because certainly religion as we now know it, especially in the forms of the Catholic Church, I mean, that's the best example. If it weren't so important to the political system as it developed, there would be no Catholic Church as we know it today. I mean, it just true. Yeah. If if it were purely religious, if it if any religion embodied what I think its most devout, heartfelt believers imagine religion to be it wouldn't be this world power with its own little city. I mean, not that it's as powerful as it once was, but even still the fact that it's as powerful as it is speaks to the staying power of political influence over time. Here's a tangent, but does anybody know why the Vatican City is its own government? Well, Mussolini, right? Back in, what was it, 1922 or 29, something like that. Up until that point, the Vatican City was just a part of Rome. But when Mussolini took over, he cut a deal with the Catholic Church because, of course, fascism, totalitarianism are vehemently anti-religion, or at least any religion that's not of the state. But, of course, you can't wipe out the Catholic Church, so he cut a deal. And they said, you know what? You can just have your own country right in the middle of Italy. So right. that speaks to, even in the face of the ultimate revolutionaries, the socialists of the early 20th century, still that Catholic Church, man. They said, where's our money? So, right, right. But (laughs) interesting. You're totally right. A huge part of the reason that these kings were able to control the people and keep them in check was that they promised this heaven. Or maybe not even so much heaven, maybe in more primitive regards, they could even say, if you don't give me your stuff, then I'll curse you, I'll cast a spell on you, or God will strike you down, whatever it might be. 
I do the will of God. Yeah. Yeah. The first video I ever made um, for my YouTube channel was called was man. I was I was such a cantankerous young man. Um, It was called I could just murder you. And it was about like the history of government on Earth as a conversation between two people. Very, very like Larkin Rose in that respect, where the government tries to justify its existence to a person using like reason and curiosity between maybe 500 BC and the modern, the modern age. Right. So, Mm -hmm. you know, it starts out with, I am God. And then when that kind of, you know, falls apart, it's like, well, I, yeah, I talked to him. I know him. I'm friends with his friends, that kind of a thing. And I think that's about the point where we're discussing right now. I mean, that is not that it doesn't exist after the enlightenment, but that is, in, in a nutshell, and very simplistically put, that is the much of the world in Europe before the Enlightenment. Yes. And to tie it back to the point of wealth, all the reason for all of that in, in your example, in your video, which I'll have to check out, I don't think I've seen that one. It's very stupid. I mean, at this <laughs> point, like YouTube videos get dated really fast. And this is yeah. one. I mean, it's still up there, but, you know, don't expect to be to be blown away. <laughs> but thank you for, for <laughs> if you take the time to watch it. I'm sorry, go ahead. No, it's fine. Um, even still, religion was a way for these kings to acquire that wealth that they so desperately needed to be kings. That, that's part of what it is. And like you say, maybe the king at first was God, and so naturally everything already belonged to him anyway. And these, the workers were just bringing it to him. But yeah, then, I think he, like Egypt. Yeah, Yeah, right. And then so we fast forward, and now... You know, King Charles II of France isn't literally God, but God put him there. And so it's only right for the resources to be brought his way. So uh, they call the divine right of kings or part of the divine right of kings. Like Louis XIV yeah. comes to mind. Yeah. 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 He was probably the archetype of that. Um, so in the Enlightenment, these these two realizations sort of happen at the same time where one these men say, well, shit, wealth is very, very important as far as power is concerned. And then they say, well, how do these guys get all the wealth? They tell us that they're on the side of God, and that convinces us or tricks us into believing we have to give up our wealth. And so property becomes this major concern. And this is where you can detect that split between what we might call liberal or neoliberal, as it became enlightenment thought, and what became socialist thought. Both were concerned with property, and both were also concerned with the fact that it needed to be decentralized. Not just one guy or one group of guys should have all of it. It should be brought back to the people. And it was just a matter of, well, how do we do that? And on the one hand, you've got folks like Bastiat and Jefferson, uh, the more American thinkers. Uh, uh, There's a long list of them who said that basically you own the fruits of your own labor, and that's the best way to make sure that it doesn't all concentrate into the hands of one group or one man. On the other hand, you get the people who say, well, wealth is just so important that we have to pool it together and then make sure everybody gets enough of it. Because if we don't do that, then it's all going to settle into one group or one man. Um, And so I think this is a debate that's going to materialize pretty much from the enlightenment onward. And it's still going on today. Right. Right. But the, the enlightenment is where we see, the dis- just as the discussion of property begins, it begins the, it begins the debate between 
individual private property and collective socialist public property right from the beginning. And it hasn't stopped since. Interesting. Yeah, I've never thought about it that way. Yeah. Um, And to keep the, the conversation within the confines of Europe. So there was an example. This is late Enlightenment. Um, you could even argue that maybe it spills over into whatever era, the Romantic era, which followed. But again, I don't want to be too rigid with these, with these dates and periods. This, this person was definitely more inclined toward Enlightenment thought, I would say, than he would be towards what we would characterize as Romantic. And this is um, Claude-Henri Saint-Simon. So you could just Saint Simon, Saint-Simon is how you can find him if you're going to look him up. Uh, he's a really interesting figure. Uh, he's a Frenchman, and he did fight, actually, in the American Revolution. But his whole thing, this is really, really interesting to me. And maybe the most interesting thing about this fellow is that I never heard his name in school. When I was taught about what the Enlightenment was and the general way that school gives that to us, uh, he was never brought up. Yet he was highly, highly influential. This man directly influenced August Comte, who is the father of sociology, uh, and Karl Marx, among a laundry list of other people. Um, but his work was very, very important and taken very seriously at the beginning of the 1800s all the way through to the end of that century. And what makes him really fascinating in regards to the socialist aspect of what the Enlightenment became was he basically believed because of industrialization, the world was changing forever. And he's right. But how do we approach this problem? I mean, this is certainly going to change the relationship that people have between labor, wealth, freedom, individuality, and politics. Indeed, yeah. And this... Right off the bat, we can see a very interesting parallel or perhaps a foreshadowing of the origins of the school system in the United States, where it's the problem of industry. What does this mean for polity? What are we going to do with all these people who are going to need work? How are we going to ensure that this economy evolves properly with the technology? Uh, So in this regard, St. Simon, Saint-Simon, has been called the father of technocracy. He basically said that we should abolish all government. And it should be replaced by a small class of ruling industrialists. And so right off the bat, this kind of sounds contrary to Enlightenment values. And socialist theory. Right. Yeah, it does. It sound, <laughs> it's very foreign to both of these systems. Right. Interesting. Yet he really did influence early socialist thought quite a bit. His system of industrialist rulers, it wasn't so much about you know, these are the guys who are going to make all the decisions for society per se. It was that they're the ones who have the capital. They're the ones who have the means of production. And so we might as well turn them into a sort of managerial class where they're going to dictate who does what within the system. It's It probably sounds confusing as I try to elaborate this. And the reason for that is His writing is very confusing. It's really hard to pin down what he was talking about, especially because in his later years, he winds up contradicting what he wrote in his earlier years. But generally, you get the sense from this guy that he wanted to reestablish the medieval feudal system. So I know back in the first episode of this show, this series, we we touched on neo-feudalism. So this is an earlier example 
of neo-feudalism, but he wanted to apply the ideals of the Enlightenment, of reason, of empiricism, of science, back. He wanted to superimpose them onto a medieval structure because he felt that this was the most rational way to conduct social goings-on. If there's going to be industry, then we're just going to have to organize the, the economy and society from the top down. So he advocated, well, in the Middle Ages, there were the three estates. These were the three constituent elements of medieval society, generally speaking. The highest most was the oratores, which was the clergy. Mm-hmm. Beneath them were the bellatores, or the landed gentry and the warriors, the soldier class. And then, of course, below them were the laboratories, the laborers. Uh, interesting how those three estates tie perfectly into Plato's three medals from the Republic, but right. that's for another time. So continuing the tradition of three social classes, St. Simon said, well, instead of clergy at the top, let's put scientists, technicians, the people who are best able to make decisions. They're going to be the ones that they don't speak for God, but they speak for reason. They're the ones who sit around all day and mathematically work out what needs to be done to make the society run smoothly. Beneath them are the property managers. So this is where I, maybe I misspoke. The society that he had placed, I said, it was ruled by industrialists. This isn't mm-hmm. so much true. I mean, that's, that's my fault. I misspoke. It's, it's run by, it's organized by these property managers, just like in the Middle Ages, it was the the gentry, the nobility that really did the the running of things. The managing, because the, they are they're the layer between the people who are actually uh, the people who are in the ruling class and the people. Well, I guess you could say that both the top two estates are the ruling class, and the bottom estate is the ruled, right? Yeah. But they're sort of the buffer, if you will. At least in St. Simon's conception of this, they're the ones who are managing the laborers. Yeah, yeah. So I, I'm, I did, I misspoke when I said they run the society because that sort of gives the connotation that they're at the very top. They're in the middle, which you could argue is maybe more important. So mm-hmm. an easy example of this would be, you know, imagine a, a restaurant, a fast food chain or something. You're a worker, you're working minimum wage. Then you've got above you your manager, and then way above the manager, there's the guy who actually owns the store. And, you know, he's the one who can mathematically work out what's going to work. He can apply reason and figure out what's the course that the store needs to take. But as far as on the ground running of things, the person who's sweating and moving and running around, that's the manager. And then even more running around and sweating beneath them is the laboring class. So as I say in St. Simon's blueprint for society. We've got the technocrats at the top, the property managers in the middle, and then, of course, at the bottom, nothing changes from the medieval system or from Plato's system. Bottom is the laborers, the working class. So it is a little bit more of a meritocracy, maybe, than the old feudal system, right? Because the, the people in the middle who might be the decision makers in a society through any kind of democratic process, that's just inherited wealth, right? That's just inherited land. In St. Simon's conception, you actually have to be able to do something to be at that managerial level. Correct. Okay. This is where it it deviates from the medieval system. It's not about aristocracy, who your dad was or whatever. It's, we always go back to Plato, but it's, it's like in the Republic, 
how Plato says, you know, we're basically going to annihilate the family in the ideal society. So nobody's worried about, oh, well, my son should be in charge because I'm in charge. All that's done away with. It's how good are you at X? If you're good at X, that's what you're going to do. If you're not good at X, then you're going to do Y or whatever else. Uh, yeah, he was, St. Simon was a very strong advocate of meritocracy. And this is one of the things that later com- or socialist and eventually Marxist um, theorists wound up repudiating him for. Uh, and dismi- Marx himself dismissed St. Simon as much as he liked him, dismissed him ultimately as a utopian thinker because he was just striving after something that wasn't going to happen. Marx's critique of St. Simon was very generally that if you open the system up to a meritocracy, then eventually you're just going to wind up with the same oligarchy that we're trying, the capitalistic oligarchy that we're trying to fight now. Right, because something, other things can be used to substitute for merit. Yes, yeah, merit eventually. a lot of things, right. So one last point about St. Simon. He, very interestingly, very interestingly, as much as he believed in freedom, and reason and science and how that's the linchpin of running a good society worth living in. He believed that everybody should still be Christian, except for the rulers. See, the rulers would have a new religion based on reason of their own, which he called physicism or physicism. Mm-hmm. And rather humorously, and I mean humorously, literally, I don't know if he was joking, but he suggested replacing the Holy Trinity or at least the first two members of the Holy Trinity, with figures or ideas that had to do with science. So in the place of God the Father was gravity. And in the place of Christ, Isaac Newton. I mean, who else, right? Mm, Maybe the Holy Spirit would be Francis Bacon. I don't know. But nonetheless, he actually suggested creating from nothing a brand new religion that would imbue within the ruling classes a sense of devotion and deification of the rational principles that govern the created world. But the people, the people would still believe in a mystical, fantastical religion that he personally thought was foolish. He wanted to reinvent Christianity so it could be used to bind and guide the masses. And the masses would believe that the ruling class was also uh, bound to the, the same faith, even though everything had been sort of swapped out. Correct. To mean other things. Yep. Interesting. Yeah. So in short, we could sum this up with a phrase, a very tidy phrase that was given to us by Plato. St. Simon was an advocate of the noble lie. And so this was the point that I wanted to get to. And I'm I'm happy that it was done as smoothly as it was, because St. Simon is, of course, a very extreme end of enlightenment thought. He by no means characterizes the general population of philosophers of the Enlightenment. He certainly took his philosophy to a very strange and unique neighborhood. Although, as I have said, it did wind up being very influential. And I mean, boy, there's a lot more to say about this guy. I recommend that everybody check him out. There's a great article. Um, Maybe we could post it in some show notes or something, but it's called The Great Synchronist or The Great Syncreticist. I'll find it and I can send you the link. Okay. Because it is a really good summation of the thought of this man and it also weaves in some biographical information he was truly troubled he was a very fascinating guy um but anyway the the end of my bringing him up is that he advocated this noble lie just as plato had done 
And we go back to the more mainstream enlightenment thinkers, if there was such a thing. Uh, and we find Voltaire, who by all metrics was not a technocrat. He was not a socialist. I mean, maybe he had some what we might call socialist tendencies in that he was he favored a enlightened despotism over a republic. But even that isn't so clear to me. And I by no means consumed his entire corpus either. So really, with any of these philosophers that I'm going to discuss, I'm totally open to correction because I'm only interpreting what I know. I'm not making any definitive statement. Sure. He seemed to, from what I've read of his, had little faith in the masses and for that reason distrusted uh, democracy, right? So he mm. liked the idea of an absolute ruler, you know, um, like we've said many times now, similar to what Plato advocated. And um, that ruler would be advised by people like himself. Yeah, that does seem to be the takeaway from really, I don't want to say all of these guys. Even think about this. One more thing on that. Have you read Hoppe? Uh, no. Okay, so Hoppe, who is uh, an, an Austrian and, oh God, I'm, I'm not going to remember what it's called, but Hoppe got a lot of positive play with like alt-right identitarians and even like libertarians who converted more towards white nationalism for these ideas of like um, exclusionary societies, um, that, that there would be a, a covenant uh, to belong to a society. And if you didn't agree to these rules, you could be physically removed. So that became like a meme of the alt-right physical removal. Mm. But one of Hoppe's other controversial ideas, completely, almost entirely unrelated to that, was the idea that monarchy, and think about this, think, just think about inserting this into a libertarian conversation. Monarchy is preferable to uh, rule of the people because a monarch has a rational uh, self-interest, right, to improve the power, to improve the, the wealth of the entire state, which would also include, to prevent revolutions, the, the standing and the stability for the lives of that monarch's subjects, right? It, it is almost like, uh, you know, we talked about Plato wanting to do away with the family because it removes all questions of inheritance. But the, in enlightened monarchy, whether it's, um, you know, Voltaire talking about it or, or Plato talking about it, there is skin in the game for the monarch because he not only wants to maintain stability in society, but also wants to pass it on to his or her descendants. You know what I mean? So it's, and then if you, if you compare that to how, uh, a democratic republic works in the United States. Nobody gives a shit. Nobody in power, like in Congress, gives a shit about what's going to happen after they're gone. It's just about maintaining their power and their influence and their access right now. Um, and if you if you look about look around at, at different aspects of politics and glad handing and lobbying and all these things, uh, you know, public sector unions come to mind, right? Where it's basically like, oh, you know, we're the teachers and we're doing it for the children. And then they negotiate with politicians to get better benefits package, like better retirement packages, all for the children, right? Pay the teachers more in their pensions for the children who are at the time 
too young to vote when these decisions are being made, even there, even though they're the ones who through taxes are going to be the ones who get the bills, you know, get, they get the bills somewhere down the road. So it's all very short term and myopic thinking. And this is kind of Hoppe's argument. And maybe I'm like superimposing Hoppe onto Voltaire a little bit. But in a monarchy, you actually have self-interest in, in maintaining – like you're invested. Politicians aren't. It's kind of like they're driving a stolen car. OK. Yeah. I mean I could, I could see that line of thought. It's, it's certainly true. I, I think that a, a monarch would be interested in maintaining his power and probably also the continuation of his dynasty. But that as a political system has not – been sustainable i mean that is true because <laughs> these people are i mean if you also think about the insularity and being surrounded by yes men like mm. even if you're just some shitty senator from you know some small state all the people you talk to all day are the people who think you're the smartest and most spectacular humanitarian that there is so imagine being a monarch right, right. through that shelter and generation after generation and historically, this problem – there's also been this problem of inbreeding, uh, which leads to various forms of insanity. Um, yeah, you are really rolling the dice with this idea <laughs> because yeah. if that person has that power and they're insane, there there isn't a tremendous amount of recourse. I mean it differs from country – from monarchy to monarchy from time to time, uh, but you have less recourse than you do in like the system of government that exists in the United States. Right. Well, and also there's – a huge question would have to be, how does one become the monarch? I mean, it'd be one thing if the people elected a monarch after the previous one died based on an ideal system of meritocracy. At least we could have a conversation about that. But we all know that if somebody's just born into riches, it's only going to be three generations until they're nuts and they've completely separated from the ideals that made the original king great. I mean, at least there's a serious chance of that happening. Right, right. That's, yeah, very good point. So, yeah, degradation, I, I would, I don't know. I I haven't read what you're speaking of. It certainly sounds interesting. But maybe this is sort of where Voltaire was coming from. And this is, I think, where Plato was coming from, too. The, the reasoning behind having an enlightened despot is that if you didn't, then nothing would really ever get done. You needed to have one person to just say, okay, you do this, you do that. And maybe that does come from a deep-seated mistrust of the masses, of the people. Because if the people were intrinsically intelligent, then I think even maybe the likes of Voltaire and Plato could say, well, then maybe we don't need a king. Because everybody would just be doing the right thing anyway. Yeah, Voltaire didn't go to the point where, like, man is evil. Mm -hmm. And, yeah, he wasn't... I, I know he was more deistic than specifically religious, but he didn't have this idea that man's natural state of existence was like complete depravity, right? He just thought, as you know, most philosophers seem to express this in one form or another. I would say certainly a majority of philosophers express the idea that most people just aren't really, they just really don't have it together. They just really aren't that smart. Founding fathers in the United States believe this, you know, I mean- yeah. You can see that Washington, Adams, but I don't think he thought people were hopeless, right? He had this belief that man, and this, I, I get this was part of him being a philosopher too, um, was capable of using reason to find the correct and moral 
course of action. Mm. Do you mean for a what he would call a philosopher, or is this a rule that would apply to the masses? I, I think he ultimately, hopefully, hopefully to him, would have applied that to the masses. Okay. I, I want to I read you this quote because it comes, it, it ties exactly into what we're saying, and it brings us back to St. Simon and Plato and this noble lie. This is, this is taken from Will Durant's story of philosophy. Um, it's a direct quote from Voltaire. Uh, this fellow, Bale, is approaching Voltaire and asking him if God is necessary, specifically if an avenging God is necessary. Is the belief in God necessary for the masses to exist within an ordered society? So Bale asks, if a society of atheists could subsist? And Voltaire's answer is, quote, yes, if they are also philosophers. And then this is unquote. But if men are seldom philosophers, quote, if there is a hamlet, be it good, it must have a religion. That's Voltaire speaking. I want my lawyer, my tailor, and my wife to believe in God. And then skipping ahead a little bit, his reasoning, I imagine I shall be less robbed and less deceived. And so this is a quote from another work of Voltaire's, uh, still keeping with Durant and the page numbers I can give you in just a second if you want to find this. Uh, this summation of Voltaire's belief, I believe, is, I begin to put more store on happiness in life than on truth, said Voltaire. And in summation, if God did not exist, it would be necessary to invent him. Unquote. Mm -hmm. So right. the idea of the noble lie continues to crop up. And I don't know where this leaves me with Voltaire, because I read about him and I, I like him. But there's just something about this. We need to lie to make the world a better place thing that just irritates me. And maybe, maybe they're right, but I don't, I don't see that. I don't see how they are. Uh, I, I think you'd really, we'd really both, and, and I haven't done it really have to dig into his work in a chronological way to evaluate how much weight we should let that statement carry. Right. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> maybe he was having a bad day. You know, not to be uh, presumptuous here, but if somebody like long after I'm gone gathered up everything I had to say, uh, you know, like in, in a recording, which will probably be possible and much easier if anybody wanted to do it in, let's say, 100 years, they'd be like, man, this guy was all over the place. Well, I'm thinking uh, I've been consistent. But, um, yeah, it's always interesting when people talk about um, uh, being confused by – Nietzsche or or other philosophers who lived and observed and wrote for a long time. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know. I mean, I from what I know of Voltaire, I always liked him because he seemed like a man of action. Right? He wasn't navel gazing. Uh, he said, you know, all of his, I think his quote was, "I, I write to act." Yeah. You know, yeah. like I'm I'm trying. To even though he didn't have like, there's no Voltarians out there, right? There's no like real specific closed Voltaire philosophy that I know about. But he was um, pragmatic and action oriented in a lot of what he wrote or a lot of what he presented. So that's one thing that I always saw as a positive about him. For sure, yeah. I, as I say, by and large, I, I, I would say that I like Voltaire too. Um, 
And also, you know, this this whole God business, it, it seems that it it could even just be a sort of airy daydream kind of thing where he's just sort of speaking tongue in cheek. Like, you know, if if I could decide, then everybody would believe in God because it makes them better people. But mm-hmm. the way this is presented in Durant, it doesn't seem he's certainly not positing some serious philosophical syllogism here. So I don't want to take that as, you know, some definitive statement of belief for his work. And certainly that doesn't necessitate necessitate anything about enlightenment philosophy in general. Can I ask you a question uh, about that? Um, In, oh, by the way, for people listening, I found a full text of uh, the story of philosophy. So I will put a link to that in the show notes as well. If people want to control find through it. Yeah, it's 264. Sorry. 264. Um, Yeah. So if you want to control find through it for anything that we're talking about, but I'll ask you for uh, some context. Is it, is it just in the general section about Voltaire where this quote appears? Okay. Yeah. That's what I remember from my uh, audiobook interaction with the story of philosophy that it was, I mean, what I, I remember it was organized by person, right. Kind of went through the story person by person. Okay. So yeah, it's tough. To, it's tough to definitively say what his. Oh, that's tough. I I, I wish I, I I'm just sitting here in silence, wishing I had a good answer to that question, right? Because obviously, there are philosophers and people thinking and writing at that time who have less faith in humanity than he does. But um, you know, advocating basically benevolent dictatorship. Uh, or enlightened monarchy means that he is also aware of a very real problem. He's not being an elitist. You know, he's a, a very real problem that most people are not um, applying reason to all of life's decisions. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And there is a, well, maybe I'll save that because we're not on that topic at this point. But now I agree. I agree. Voltaire. Well, okay. I want to, my, my reasoning for bringing up this issue of religion in regards to the thought of Voltaire and really anybody in the Enlightenment is removing this noble lie from the personalities of the philosopher and just considering it as an idea. Do people need to believe in God if they are to have a functioning society? That's something that's been talked about for a very long time. And interestingly, in preparation for this show, I, I watched a video on YouTube of Jordan Peterson interviewing Ben Shapiro on the Enlightenment. Mm-hmm. And the meat of their conversation was this question. Do, do we need to believe in God? And of course, Shapiro is a, a Jew. Jordan Peterson seems to sort of dodge the question of whether or not he believes in God. But yeah, he makes it very clear in this video that he believes you do need to have that, as he would call it, metaphysical substrate underlying these enlightenment values. Um, so in the in the video, in this interview between the two of them, they attack the idea, which I think I, I agree with. I don't think they're straw manning when they say that a lot of people sort of see the enlightenment as something that just popped up out of nowhere in spite of all the stupidity and dogma that was religious medieval Europe, that suddenly these people just said, wait a minute, we can reason and sort of tear down everything that came before and build this new world. And that sort of begins to 
move us to the, the conversation of enlightened utopianism. But I think that it is a really important question. And it's important to realize that nothing just pops out of nowhere. The Enlightenment did come out of a certain type of society that did have these metaphysical presuppositions, epistemological presuppositions, without derailing the conversation and, you know, getting into what was the cause of the Enlightenment and, you know, did, how, what affected the Middle Ages and the Renaissance have on it. The question of whether or not a society needs to believe in what its rulers might consider a lie, that is, the belief in God, whether that society needs that belief in order to exist properly. Because it basically boils down to what is more important, truth or the good life? And that begs the question, what's the difference? Is there one? You know, it's, mm -hmm. it's huge. It's certainly not a philosophical question that we're going to answer definitively in this episode or this series and maybe not even in our lifetimes. I mean, this has been talked about for a very long time. I think it's a fascinating question. You know, I always used to talk about free will in the sort of free will versus determinism debate. Um, I think free will is something that people can get closer and closer to if they earn it, mm. you know, if they earn it through their own self-knowledge and more competent operation of their own minds in education and just in general observations on social media and watching the news and you know, watching how people engage with politics. Yeah, uh, most people behave very deterministically. There's a very strong argument for for determinism, right? People don't fully understand why they think the thoughts they think, why they take the actions they ultimately take. That's uh, that's understandable. I think that's that's a self-knowledge problem. So if you scale that up to an entire society, maybe a world free of noble lies is something that, you know, a mass of people could earn, but I don't think it's like heresy to say if you prioritize the stability of society, right, where everybody doesn't die in a fire and all the books aren't burned in a fire, uh, that, yeah, maybe maybe these types of noble lies, even even if – no, I guess people people propagating them would understand that they were – or, or they would believe that it was untrue, right? They might believe there is no God, but it's important that the people understand that that, that the people think there is a God. Um, that that was that was a necessity for the maintenance of some kind of order, right? right? That goes back to the Bible, mm -hmm. for sure, for sure. Yeah. It's, it's the cornerstone of society, or it's it's the cornerstone of what societies, have, as we know them, have been for the vast majority of history. Um, but I, I really I appreciate your statement that free will is something to be earned because maybe this brings us to yet another very important enlightenment idea, which is that of the tabula rasa, the blank slate, the idea that the human mind comes out of the womb with nothing pre-programmed in it. And mm -hmm. it seems to me that if what you're saying is true, if people can earn free will, maybe that's sort of the opposite of a tabula rasa because if you ascribe to the idea that man is born a blank slate and then society just puts things in his head and sort of builds these walls around the potential that is your newborn mind, it would, according to that worldview, it would seem that you only have free will at the moment of your birth because there aren't these things guiding you. But as right, you grow, right. these deterministic 
experiences and restrictions build themselves up in your head. And the older you get, I guess, according to this theory, the less free will you would have. Maybe that's an oversimplification of the tabula rasa theory. But then again, I think the idea that your mind is a blank slate is itself an oversimplification. So sue me. But <laughs> I don't know. It's I, I like what you're saying better. And that's obviously not a logical argument. But I, I think that it, it, it rings truer to me that you're born with and then you're raised, you're grown by society, by people. That's where the restrictions come from. When you're a baby, you have no free will. I mean, this is just evident that you can't actually do anything, really. If Even if your mind was a blank slate, which, by the way, it's not because babies cry. Why? Because they're hungry, because they shit themselves. Da, 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 da. There's a whole list of reasons why babies are clearly not blank slates. They have right. feelings. There are things innate within them. And as we grow up, we're inculcated with these new things, be they, you know, by way of school, by parents, by religion, rules and restrictions are laid down. So it seems that all of the deterministic elements that might turn somebody into a cognitive slave for their entire life are most importantly instilled within them when they're young. And this is, of course, not news to anybody. Obviously, children are malleable. That's why school starts when you're four and not when you're 40. Even though a 40-year-old has far more potential when it comes to actually acting within the world. They can just do more things, yet we don't school them. They're already schooled. So, hmm. Well, I, I think it's kind of like, this might be a stretch for an analogy, but like with a computer, you have an operating system and then you have programs. The operating system, I would say for most people, is set up at a very early age. Yeah. Because I don't like the idea of saying that uh, people, as they get older and older, are just more – as they absorb more information, they're just increasingly susceptible to – uh, the opinions of others, right? It depends mm -hmm. on how much agency you want to give an individual. And like you said, when people are very young, they don't have a lot of agency. They don't have a lot of intellectual independence. So it's very easier to mold them into, uh, you know, maybe things or ideas that they might not be so e easily able to work themselves out of. Uh, but depending on what happens for a child emotionally in those very early years, if that sets a kind of operating system, um, you know, not to just torture this analogy, but like some programs might not open. Yeah. You know? So I think it is back to the agency thing. If people are self-aware, if they question uh, their own thinking in a healthy way, if they question themselves, if they try to do better, because obviously um, the emotions will just run rough shot over a person's attempt to find any kind of intellectual uh, clarity in the world, right? Like I've held my phone in arguments before and said, look, what's on my screen will prove you wrong and had people run away, right? <laughs> so that is clearly the emotions interfering with any kind of intellectual pursuit. Sure. So um, yeah, I mean, I guess it just depends on what kind of self-knowledge people are willing to pursue. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, we're, I don't know if there's a scientific term for this, but just the idea that the longer you hold a belief, be it erroneous or not, the longer you hold it, 
the more tightly you will cling to it. You know, it'll, it's probably a lot easier to change the mind politically of a person who's, let's say, 16, 18, maybe 25, than it is to change politically the mind of somebody who's 80 or 60 or, you know, like, sure. You meet a 70 year old Republican, they're a Republican. Unless some, unless you could figure out some magical rhetoric that nobody's ever heard before that can change this person's mind fundamentally, the odds are they're going to stay the same because this is just burned into them. Or back to the, wow, I can't believe that you actually provided an example that makes my analogy work better, but uh, (laughs) programs versus operating systems. So uh, in one of those um, Gatto videos I made, I remember him talking about the book Propaganda by Jacques Ellul. Right. Um, You've read that book, right? Yes. Okay. So he says that people, when unable to like move forward with one belief system or one um, sort of intellectual leader, they will immediately adopt another, you know? And you, so you think about somebody just switching their allegiances, but so, so they're like closing one program and opening another program, but it's still like, who will lead me? Right. Yeah. So, so, so it's similar. It's, it still needs that same kind of, um, non independent operating system to run on. Yes. No, that's a great point, actually. Um, I'm glad that you reminded me of that because I think that's something that I had just neglected or forgotten really to include in this whole matrix of thought. Um, But that is true that maybe you can convince the average 70 year old Republican, you know, you should really be a Democrat. Maybe you could do that. And I also don't want to overgeneralize because certainly we're familiar with people just given the circles that we move in. There are people who are decades older than me that maybe in their 40s or their 50s, they suddenly realized, you know what, I don't want to be a Republican or a Democrat anymore, and are now anarchists or libertarians. So I'm certainly not saying it's impossible. Sure, yeah. But, and maybe these are exceptions even to that rule that Elul put forward. Maybe these are people who said, you know what, I'm done with being led, which I'm sure is very rare. I don't know how often that happens statistically. Um but it's an interesting idea to consider. But still, taking it back to the tabula rasa, the blank slate, in the context of your proposition that free will is something to be to be developed and earned, you sort of have to work your way out of determinism by recognizing what in your life is deterministic and then figuring out how you want to approach it, how you want to move away from it. Mm, good point. Right. So... Hmm. This is very interesting to consider because it's not it's not so much historical. This is purely philosophical. And philosophy means for a lot of long pauses. So <laughs> I'll try to sum it up in at least as far as I understand what you're saying, and then maybe we can get into a more concrete uh aspect of this conversation just so so I don't sit here going, hmm, for too long. Uh, this is great. This is what I love. I love this. Well, I'm glad. I'm glad. I love it, too. And I can, I mean, man, I can shorten any silence in post-production. Wouldn't work so well for a podcast, you know, because people would be like, there's too much silence. But in a bonus show, people are, you know, they're here to explore. So it's true. Yeah, that's yeah. fine. Let's let's dig into it. Okay. I'm just I'm just thinking about 
one of the really important reasons that I wanted to talk about this tabula rasa, this blank slate idea, was how really, ultimately, it became the philosophical justification for creating a school system. That was Locke's thing. I mean, John Locke had a theory of education, and it was built on the idea that you're born a blank slate, therefore, get the kids. And, I mean, that's ever since. And, I mean, I don't even think just moving forward from that point we find that idea. But even moving backwards, Locke was by no means a rationalist Platonist, yet I think that we can identify that idea in Plato even though Plato believed that our mind is nothing but innate ideas, he still said, get the kids because they're the most malleable. So how I want to now take that idea, kids are malleable, kids are the least deterministic beings in the human race, which seems to be what was put forth by these guys. And then work that into what you are saying about the sort of the flip side of it, which is that when you're younger and you have less agency, your life is more deterministic and only through a process of self-knowledge, through self-actualization, awareness, at trials, tribulations, you can work yourself toward free will. That's sort of Maybe I'm oversimplifying, correct me if I'm wrong, but it sounds maybe like what you're saying is that you're born a slate that's covered in chalk. And if you work hard enough, you can erase it and sort of become a blank slate, become an open mind, and, and then on which you can draw what you want rather than what has been drawn there in the first place. Maybe that's too, maybe I'm taking the metaphor too literally. But does that resonate with you at all? Does that make I- sense? I would agree that you're born, I mean, obviously we're born defenseless, right? So then it is just a matter, and like the school system occludes this from happening for so many people, but as we grow and we persevere through challenges that are meaningful for us, uh, I think we develop more confidence in our ability, more confidence in our perseverance for future pursuits. And, and and through that process, we become more self-directed, right? Like I see a lot of kids. I was just on a family vacation for a week, right? So mm-hmm. I see a lot of kids kind of – I'm very critical of a lot of the parenting I see in my family. But I have nieces and nephews. I feel like they kind of get ignored until they do something wrong, right? Yeah. And what I see is them really needing and wanting visibility. And part of that is like like a way that kids often get visibility in dysfunctional situations is they act out, right? Because then at least they're being attended to, even if it's negative, by the people they want to be attended to. So, I mean, there's just a situation where, you know, I made made <laughs> my my nephew's help get ready for a party for my mother, right? Like a big party because they just walk around. I mean, I think this is more general with that group of kids today. They're very entitled. Things are really at their fingertips and um, they make terrible messes, which I think is is maybe just uh, 
you know, a habit of 10 and 11 year olds all over the world. But I'm just uh, cleaning up and I realized there's just fucking Chex Mix everywhere, all over the house. Like they're leaving uh, breadcrumb trails of Chex Mix to find their way back somewhere. Right. So I say, <laughs> I mean, I did this kind of as a joke, even though you could say it was mildly deceptive. I walk out to where they were and I go, who loves Chex Mix? They're like, oh, we do. And I said, all right, come with me. And they came inside and I gave them each a broom. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> sweep them all up, you know, So, which which I thought was funny. And they 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 acted for a moment like I had put them in jail. Um, so there's that problem, that level of whatever you want to call it, awareness. These kids are schooled. They're not they don't get enough positive attention. They don't have meaningful things to do. So that's like one of the outgrowths of that kind of treatment. But I said to my nephew. You know, we're prepping food. We're having this big cookout. So I'm like hand making all the burgers. And I said to him, you want to make burgers for all these people? There's going to be like 30 people there. And I said, if they're bad, I'll take the blame. But if they're good, you can have the credit. And just the idea of like, let's cook for all these people. Let's make burgers for all these people was all this kid needed to hear to kind of like, you know, going from staring into his phone or being walking around, you know, looking for trouble or being kind of shiftless to being fully engaged in an activity that he seemed to care about. Right. So my philosophy of education includes creating as many opportunities for like that for kids as possible to do something that is visibility plus meaning. You know, even though this is a kind of a maybe a small, silly example that I'm giving, uh, but it made his day and he certainly loved getting uh, the credit, you know, and I made sure that everybody knew that he helped and he did the work when people said they were good. So I think that as young people accrue those kinds of experiences, they're more open to intellectual pursuits. They're more open to challenge, right? They're more open to adversity. And the way people are schooled now, they're resisting all of that, right? As I've always said, and it's very cliche, that they associate learning with pain and boredom. Learning as an adult is not always a present, a pleasant proposition. What people want is to feel informed. They have a need to make meaning out of the world around them. But if somebody, going back to Elul, can hand them that, fucking great, you know? Right. So... I think that if people take this passive approach to interaction with information in the world, yeah, they they become less and less and less of a blank slate as they get older. And because there's like emotional skin in the game, they clutch on to those beliefs, which is part of their which become, I think, part of their identity more tightly the longer they hold them. But if somebody was educated in a completely different way. And certainly there's people who go through the school system and still possess these abilities. I mean, it's all up to the individual. I'm just identifying some patterns. Um, they would be more open to being wrong. They'd be more open to being challenged. They'd be more open to uh, rewriting what's on that slate, you know, erasing things that are there and, and putting new things down. So I think I think it's just that, like, are people being educated? Are people educating themselves or being educated or are they getting schooled? That's what I think it comes down to. Okay. Yeah, I see that. So are you familiar then with the educational philosophy that was outlined in the Enlightenment at all? Because 
by Locke or Rousseau or because Rousseau did a lot of work on education right. in early childhood. Right. Either one. And like just very generally speaking, do you think that either of these two guys, Locke or Rousseau, with their educational approaches that were based on this tabula rasa theory, do either of those resonate with you given what you just said? Your, your differentiation between true education and sort of deterministic schooling. Do you think that, maybe again, I'm being too general, but do you think that education in early childhood as they outlined it would more neatly fit your educational preferences or would more neatly fit into what became public schooling, if that makes sense? What was the book that Rousseau had this book, Emile, or mm. Emma, I'm not saying that right. It definitely has a French pronunciation that was all about this. Right. And I mean, well, first of all, how would you distinguish their views on education, Locke and Rousseau? Mm. I know Rousseau, he, he did the thing where he would split it up by age group. So mm, I don't want to give exact years because I'm probably off, but I think maybe around ending at the age of 12 the first period of education would end uh, and that was just tailoring the emotions and the impulses of children so making sure that they didn't have outbursts too much. like they were just properly constituted they didn't really get into any sort of cerebral activity they could manage themselves right 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 okay so, so maybe they wouldn't be leaving trails of checks mix. Like maybe, exactly. That's as far as you would go. Uh, like, don't just drop your shit, pick your shit up. Uh, the next stage, early to late teens, that's introducing cognitive practices. I think maybe like basic math, probably geometry, reading. Um, I don't actually, I don't know if he taught, he would have had them taught reading in the first stage. I don't know. But the second stage is beginning, getting the first glimmerings of reasoning. And then the final stage is like practical education on adulthood. But we remember that Rousseau was the guy who believed that society was the ultimate corrupter as well. Mm -hmm. So he's trying to present this education system in a way that will not spoil the primitive goodness that is the human being by an oppressive society. How you manage to institute an educational program that prevents people from being overly affected by institutions seems kind of odd. Well, let's, yeah, let's start with Rousseau actually, because I think it is, and I don't know if he had children himself, but I think it's a fairly realistic, like parts of it are a fairly realistic treat, treatment of what education could be in the world at that time. Now, hmm. obviously this is pre-industrial and um, the industrial revolution creates all new motivations for education so-called right but the agrarian age before that is no picnic either so when he talks about like when kids are in these formative years up to age 12 or so they're learning impulse control self-control kinesthetic like body control uh yeah i mean that would have been the order of the day 
It's not like go out and explore whatever you want. I mean, imagine like the Facebook radical unschooling group introduced to that agrarian world that these people live in. And people are posting like, my son likes to make puppets out of vegetables. Like, who the fuck does your son think he is? We need those vegetables and he needs to know how to pick them. Right. right? So my educational philosophy obviously isn't going to align with anybody who had a realistic assessment of the world. 300 years ago, or even maybe in the industrial, even we could say that the industrial revolution and the educational outgrowth of the industrial revolution was cruel to children, especially as it led to the development of like modern public school. But even back then, I I think the idea was like, yeah, like kids need to be in control so they can um, pitch in in a, a difficult life. Right, right. That was, I mean, wasn't that why people had kids? Sure. I mean, or, or it was part of it, you For know, sure. it's it certainly, certainly in more um, agrarian societies, you have kids because you need workers and you need somebody who's going to take care of you when you're old. So, I mean, obviously that's not the entire motivation, but um, so, yeah, I think that teaching young people, again, evaluating somebody in the context of their time, he had positive ideas about the promotion of the self-government of the individual. He advocated uh, the explicit teaching of reason. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. You know, you said in your notes, his idea of the outcome of education was to try to cultivate a natural goodness in man while preparing him to live in a wicked world, Yes, which is, you know, intellectual Mm self-defense, I would say. So I've been critical of his philosophy before and you know, only remembering essences of it now. I can't dig into the specifics of those criticisms, but evaluating him in the context of his time, it's not, you know, the most, it's, it's certainly not horrid what he was saying. Definitely. Right. Locke, I don't know that much about though. Yeah. Me neither. Unfortunately I should, uh, I should, but I do know that certainly John Locke was a very influential philosopher of the day not just in terms of education, but as far as, you know, life, liberty, property. Um, he was a huge influence on the likes of Thomas Jefferson, um, Voltaire, and a number of other people. But I, I think that it is very important when we can to see how these people approach the education or rearing of children, because obviously it. I don't see how there could be any debate that the education of children is where the future lies. I mean, that's why every single dictator, every single despot has tried desperately to control the education or the schooling of children. It's sort of going to be implicit within any political philosophy, no matter who it is, whether it be monarchical, socialist, communist, Nazi, you're always going to find an education plan. And I think that in the Enlightenment, what sets it apart from the general rule of education plans, at least insofar as Rousseau goes, is it did focus on, well, what's the what's best for the child? He sort of abandoned this sense that we have to focus on this larger social machine and instead just focus on smaller communities. Uh, that seems, that's, that's the impression that I get from Rousseau because he did advocate for so, a sort of primitive uh well, he, he regarded that the evils of man were due to society. He ascribed to the idea of the tabula rasa, that 
a human is, well, sort of tabula rasa. He said that humans are born basically good. Uh, so that would be the blank slate. They're good. Yeah. And then it's this wretched society in which we live that corrupts them. So that, at first they were pure, but now there are all these things that muddle them and confuse them and get them fighting with each other and greedy. And how do we avoid that while we live in this world? As far as that goes, I mean, that's what we're doing right now, where we find ourselves in a world. And so we could sit here and, you know, daydream about what the perfect education would be like in a world that wasn't wicked, but that'd be a waste of time. So you have to work within the confines of your era. And that seems to be what Rousseau was doing. And so to me, that's a, that is a definite pro point in favor of enlightenment thought as far as combating what traditional utopianism was as far as I've been able to define it. Because it, it doesn't say that we've got this one-size-fits-all society and in order to achieve it, everybody's going to march in lockstep. Instead, he says, no, the less, inst- the less institutionalization, the better. I just don't know how his school system would work practically. Like, how would he get people to do it? But maybe that's beside the point. I, I just I, on Rousseau more generally, he did. He, I think he did coin a term that many like anarchists and libertarians consider to be one of the most utopian notions ever: uh, social contract theory, ah, which yes. uh, which obviously relates to this. Yes, yes. Thank you for bringing that up. For sure, it does. It does relate heavily and. I think, again, you know, probably your audience is very familiar with the palpable ridiculousness of the term social contract, at least insofar as it's presented in the modern world where, you know, you're, you're basically born into a contract that you didn't sign and you're obligated to follow it, even though it's not really written anywhere either. Like the, the duties of the individual to the community and the duties of the community to the individual aren't really properly enumerated anywhere. You could point to the constitution, but that's not really any practical or realistic way to gauge the relationship between the individual and the government. Yeah. And he would have been going back to what the Magna Carta. Yeah. Right. Some, yeah, I guess I don't think that, yeah, that would be the document. So we'd all be heirs to the Magna Carta basically. Yeah. I'm not, you know, I'm sure I, I haven't read uh, Rousseau's justification for this, so I don't want to shit on it. But I'm just from what I known, I've known, I've had a very difficult time understanding how it's justified logically. Yeah, it, it is. It requires faith. It requires a lot of faith, especially when you think about, okay, what do you give up? What do you get? Who ensures what you get? Who are the stewards of those gettins? <laughs> you know, like all of these things. Like, and then, and then, if you know anything about the the modern political state, you see how every single one of the gets is under. Th- well, not every single one, but most of them are under threat. Some have disappeared altogether, and um, the services. Geez, how many things does the government call services? You know, child it. protective services. So, um, yeah, that, that, that is, uh, that's a messy one for sure. Yeah. I mean, if you can't get out of this quote unquote contract without getting killed or put in a cage, I don't see how it's a contract. It's just, you know, uh, the very 
name of the idea of social contract it seems seems rather utopian as you said um although i do think that to some extent it could be made feasible in i don't know we should just draw up an actual social contract like insofar as there could be an anarchistic community wouldn't that be what occurred like a literal social contract like we need people who will tend to the fires we want people who are going to stop the murderers we want mm-hmm. people to make sure the infrastructure is cool, yada, yada, yada. All those things can be enumerated in contract form and dealt with in that way. That would be like sort of voluntary arrangements on a collective scale uh, while still ensuring the rights of the individual because it'd be a contract. So you could negotiate however you needed to. So I think that there could be a sort of social contract that's useful and logical, but it doesn't seem to correlate to the social contract that we have come to know as just a justification for there being a government. Right. And it would have to be fluid, right? As things change, as situations, populations, all of that, the social contract, so-called, that we do know about is very fluid. But all the the ability to change it is one way, right? Mm -hmm. This was actually like – so I was – I would say I was holding court with a group of like people my parents' age – uh, a few nights ago, and they're all talking about politics and, you know, Republicans versus Democrats, because that's the frame they have through which to, to view that whole thing. And, you know, I said, look, if you don't engage in some kind of this is the Voltaire in me, if you don't engage in some kind of direct action, right, like if, if you're a Democrat, are you out there for the environment or whatever, you know, cause is big? Um, if you're a Republican, are you out there involved in some kind of activism, promoting traditional family values or, you know, whatever, pick your Republican issues? If you're not, it doesn't matter what you are because all you get to do is once a year go check boxes next uh, names of psychopaths who don't care about you. Yeah. So like every conversation you've ever had about politics, if it doesn't involve some kind of action that you take that aligns with your beliefs, you're just jacking off. I didn't say that to all these nice moms and dads from the neighborhood, but you you're just jacking off yep. like that's all you're doing. So if you don't take action, who gives a shit what you think? It doesn't matter. You, you, all you, it's, it's like you, you write down all your ideas on a piece of paper and then once a year, you know, you go out into a windstorm and throw it in the air. Like, and that's basically what you do. I love that you brought that up because that's something that, well, first of all, I'll preface by saying you're, I totally agree with you. I don't see how there's any point in even, in even having opinions about serious issues if you're not going to. I mean, put yourself on the line, your reputation, even your life in some in some instances. You have to be willing to go out and make that change or at least try to. But it's funny that you bring this up because I've had that pretty much same thing thrown at me when I tell somebody I don't vote. It's like, here you are talking about the politics and the problems of the world and you don't vote. You don't take action. You shouldn't. You don't have an opinion. The classic thing. If you don't vote, you can't complain. So it's just ironic right. how the people that you are talking about will employ that same thing to somebody who doesn't vote because they believe they, I mean, maybe they agree with what you're saying. They just see voting as the action. That's the proper action as 
as given to us by the social contract, that is the proper recourse for action, for change in our society. And that's what right. I <laughs> Operating system, right? Yeah. That's an operating system. Yeah. So, and that's very, very schooled into people, right? Like, who do you go to when there's a problem? An adult, don't try to solve problems. It's the whole, like, helicopter parent bubble-wrapped kids thing, too. You seem like, from the stories that I know about you growing up, you had some freedom to explore, right? At a time where most people your age did not. Uh, Most people your age were fucking leashed by their parents, sometimes literally, when they were kids. Uh, you know, when I was growing up in the eighties, I had uh, mom getting on my bike. I'll be back at, you know, some point. Right. Uh, until everybody supposedly started getting kidnapped and white windowless vans were driving around every town in America. Uh, we were pretty free to, uh, you know, do what we want. What was the point that I was trying to make? You're talking about how the going to adults, deferring to authority right. was into us. Yeah. So now you have college kids who are crying to deans, uh, because they're offended. Right. And that, and that, that's something, that's a change that I've seen in my lifetime. Um, but that has been schooled into people in, in lesser forms for a century. Um, through, I mean, just in America, through the public schools, the obedience and deference to authority is not a new idea. We can certainly take it all the way back to the time we've been talking about in this, yeah. in this show so far. Yeah. And maybe the enlightenment is just like a slight easing off of that authoritarian impetus to just turn children into little drones um, that that support the status quo and in the minds of the the leaders the children and the adults they grow up to be will support the status quo to a greater degree than the current generation right like it has to ramp up every generation becomes more and more married to the system Uh, maybe in the enlightenment because there were in many cases very radical anti-authoritarian pockets of thought obviously the the two revolutions that came out of the enlightenment enlightenment spring to mind maybe for just a minute there was an easing off of that impetus just a second people began to say you know what maybe we'll just let the kids do what they want i mean obviously there were rules i shouldn't i shouldn't overgeneralize and imagine that you know the and voltaire was out just banging bitches and smoking blunts and shit and saying, do whatever the fuck you want it wasn't quite that libertine although it was pretty libertine um, but there were certainly remnants of Puritanism. Uh, the founding fathers were very puritanical in their own right. But when it came to, I guess, official Puritanism, they, rather than like cultural or behavioral Puritanism, they were very rebellious. And I guess that sort of did sprinkle down into the education of children. I mean, John Taylor Gatto has no shortage of examples of children from that era who flourished because they were allowed to just put themselves in situations that they found interesting, explore them, and then develop. The the one that really sticks with me, and it stuck with him too, I think, because he mentioned it in so many different lectures of his, was David Farragut, the guy who became the first U.S. Navy admiral. He sailed his first ship when he was like, what, 12? He was pirate hunting in the Mediterranean by the age of 15, because he had exposed himself to these situations. He was by no means a schooled man. George Washington yeah. was a land surveyor who had made like $100,000 by the time he was 11 or something. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, could you imagine today, if you saw a child on the news who had just made $100,000 on his own 
Like, what would you think? Like, I don't even know how that would register to most people. But it happened back then. I, I, I have to think there'd be some kind of child labor case in there. Yeah. If yeah, that happened today. Some, there would be some problem. Not to be so cynical. I mean, it's not like a, an 11 year old's never made a uh, hundred thousand uh, dollars. Right. right. And, you know, there's lots of stories about that happening and the parents swooping in and taking the money like poor Macaulay Culkin and uh, Home Alone. But, yeah, uh, you know, Franklin is another I mean, Gatto mentions that when Gatto wrote against school, he um, he mentions Franklin and Farragut, I think, in the same paragraph, you know, mm-hmm. for for the very same reason. I remember reading an article on fee. Um, and it said Ben Franklin was the pioneer of the spirit of self-help in America, mm-hmm. which I, I kind of like. If you think about it, uh, you know, had very little, if any, formal schooling and, uh, you know, knew French, knew German, <laughs> Italian, Latin, Spanish. He played the guitar. He played the violin. Uh, he played some other uh, – some what they uh, – Maybe the harp. He played some. He played a bunch of instruments. He spoke a bunch of languages, and he barely had any formal schooling. You know, right, right. And then he, and then from there, he he went on to you know start a series of uh, successful publication businesses. And then from there, um, you know, he certainly made uh, like did, did experiments to make like thunderstorms less terrifying for the average person at the time. And, uh, you know, from there, he was one of the founding fathers of the United States. So yeah. that, that's a, a lot to do. Um, sorry, teachers and school apologists with three years of formal education. <laughs> BRB going to start a country. Yeah, that guy was crazy. And like you said, no schooling or very little schooling. It's it's staggering when you consider what people are capable of when they're allowed to pursue their interests in the world. And I know this is sort of, this is redundant because you've talked about this so much on your show, but in in regards to the enlightenment and the approach on education, the more openness that children were allowed, just go out and explore the world than probably had come before. Because as you say, in, in an agrarian society, particularly one that is, a feudal society where there's a very strict religious system dominating you. Um, education is, if you do receive an education, it's through the church. You're expected to be there. And if you're not there, you better be helping your parents out on the farm. But in colonial America, obviously it was highly agrarian, but we were also experiencing the beginnings of industrialization. So you could sort of see what we might call the middle class cropping. And these kids were able to go out and explore and do things. And I don't know enough about what the average experience of a person was like back then to make any sort of intelligent estimate as how many people got to enjoy this freedom in their childhood. But the fact that we see it happening and we see it being successful is worth considering, especially in an era where police are shutting down lemonade stands because the children don't have business licenses. Like, yeah. Right. That can you? What is more antithetical to the quote-unquote American dream? And we we haven't even started talking about the United States and whether or not it's a utopian experiment. And that's fine. Um, but as far as the ideals of what America supposedly was go, I don't think shutting down lemonade stands was was in the Constitution. But I could be wrong. I haven't read it in a while. Um, 
<laughs> There's that, but that's the social contract problem, right? So that that even if we don't get to it all in today's show, uh, a fine preview for anybody who was on the edge of their seat. Locke was probably, I would say, maybe the biggest influence in a lot of ways on the founding fathers, even though they tweaked some of what he said. But you know, Rousseau was there too. Yeah. And there's your social and and obviously the the constitution which comes after the sometime after the initial founding but that idea of social contract is very much in there, right? So so that is the foundation of what we have today. Yes. Right? Yes. It started with that document and every single thing that the government has done you know, between 1790 and 2019, there was a lawyer or a constitutional scholar who came up with a justification for that government action. It is yep. required. Yep. Yep. And so it's it's sort of akin to what Edward Bernays had to say about democracy. Because, you know, we're, we're schooled to believe very simply that democracy is government of, by, and for the people. But as Bernays pointed out in his book, Propaganda, people are malleable. Um, And he didn't outright say this, but it's sort of implied. People are made extra malleable by the fact that they're schooled. Uh, Therefore, in a democracy, power doesn't lie with the masses. It lies with those who are intelligent enough to manipulate the masses. So- we can juxtapose that onto what you're saying about the constitution. The constitution does not actually mean the law of our land in any practical sense. The law of our land belongs to those who are intelligent enough to interpret the constitution to be the law. You know, that's well said. Yeah, absolutely. And so maybe this, maybe that kind of clarifies my own thoughts as to the United States status as a utopia or a utopian scheme in the beginning, because the idea that you can just set down the ideal government on a couple pieces of paper and then figure that everything will be fine. In fact, it will be the greatest government ever. I mean, that's, that's quite a leap. And now I don't just want to, I don't want to overuse the idea of utopia because obviously you can't just expect people to come up with, I mean, any system that fails probably had a good intention at the beginning, or the people who laid it down had a good intention. Just because you try something and it doesn't work doesn't mean you're a utopian. And this is where I'm wrestling with what was the United States? Was it supposed to be perfect? What did the founding fathers have to say about the outcome, the eventual long-term outcome of this government. Not to be hammy, but it was supposed to be more perfect. More perfect. A more perfect union? Yeah, yeah. Uh, Which I guess would, I guess on a spectrum from disastrous to perfect, their idea was that it would move. I'm, I'm guessing that the meaning of that was they would move the needle, you know, in the direction of perfect. Right. So that sort of ties into the enlightenment concept of progress. And this is an interesting thing because today it's really easy for us to take for granted the idea that, you know, we started with very simple tools, with very primitive societies, 
And then the tools got a little more complicated. The society got a little bit better. On and on through history, we see things just getting better. Um, and so, you know, today we look around and say, yeah, yeah, right, definitely. But maybe it's surprising to people, but that wasn't a thing. That I, as an idea, progress just didn't exist really until the Enlightenment. I mean, people had thought kind of around the edges of it, but it was usually the development of humanity was usually conceived of something more cyclical. Like we have these good periods and then bad periods and good periods and bad periods. And it usually yeah. involved gods or spirits. But in the Enlightenment, and we sort of touched on this last time, I think, when we discussed Francis Bacon and how he realized that, hey, if we apply reason and science to the problems of society, we can improve. We can continually get better. And so the Enlightenment took that idea and really just blew it up and said, so long as there is human action, we can improve the world. And it sounds like that's sort of what the founding fathers were aiming at. Not perfection per se, but getting there. It's like maybe you can't ever completely earn free will, but you can get closer. What do you call, what's that? It's a mathematical thing where you've got the graph. And there, there's a line that just curves ever upwards. J curve. J curve. Is that where? It, so if something starts kind of flat and then all of a sudden goes all up at once, it goes all up at once. But it, the idea is that if you continued the vertical line of the graph infinitely and you continued that the curve infinitely, it would keep going. But the line, the two lines would never touch. So there is no actual realization of perfection. It's, right. It's just closer, 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 but somehow never gets there. Because Yeah. So maybe that's sort of what they're aiming at, which I don't know. <laughs> that's that's a that's a funny idea to think of because it's so abstract. But I guess society in a way is an abstract thing. And how would you how would you measure the perfect society or the almost perfect society? I guess we just keep doing it. Like there's that website humanprogress.org. Are you familiar with that? I am. Who who does that site? I don't know. I I should know because I just heard the guy's name yesterday. I feel like it's Pinker. Is it Steven Pinker who does that? If he doesn't run it, he's closely involved. I don't know because just yesterday I was listening to him do an interview on the Enlightenment and he mentioned the actual name of the guy who runs the site, I think. But I'm sure he's involved with it to a larger degree than just an observer. But that's a really interesting site to consider. I mean, if we can map positive beneficial changes for humanity on a global scale, and if we can directly attribute that to the political systems that grew up or grew out of the Enlightenment, we shouldn't expect everything to be perfect, but if it's doing better than anything else, I mean, shit, you know, that's good. That's a good thing. And so this is where I get hung up. This is where I really, I need to spend a lot of time just thinking and writing and working these ideas out because for as much harm the United States and relatively similar states have caused in the world over the past couple hundred years, do we know for a fact that those harms outweigh the benefits? And if they do, then that's a problem. 
the problem with that, though, is that it's completely subjective, right? Like yep. if you ask people in Vietnam, they'd say, fuck your benefits, you know? Right. So, um, I mean, the best I could do is looking at what the government of the United States and what the trends in the United States society have just been over my lifetime, um, where some are positive, some are negative, uh, depending on, you know, where you point your lens of awareness, right? Like if you, if you spend a lot of time in front of your computer, I would think your assessment would be things are moving in a negative direction, right? Because you're exposed to all this shitty news. You're exposed to the way people behave on social media. But it, <laughs> unless you're on humanprogress.org all day. Right. Yeah. But it, you know, it depends on what kind of work you do. I mean, I think a lot of people who feel, you know, somewhat invisible or powerless in, in large corporations, um, probably, I mean, just from conversations that I've had, they, they might, deal with that powerlessness or invisibility with stories about how the corporation is failing or it's not what it used to be or the management is stupid or we're going in the wrong direction. Um, obviously, I would say um, politically it's a mix, right? Because, you know, maybe in, in many ways over like on a long on a long time scale, government has had to respond to pressures from social movements in ways that are positive. Uh, but government has also become more perfected in perception management and population control. And in a lot of ways, we have uh, less freedoms, many like startlingly less freedoms than we did 100 years ago. Lemonade. You know? yeah. yeah, I mean, 100 years ago, there was no passports. There was no income tax. Right. Like, um, but in, and then if you look at sort of the practical freedoms of living it's kind of like thaddeus russell's idea in that book that he's writing about u.s foreign policy and blood and freedom where it's like governments come and do all these terrible things but then sort of superimpose american culture on their invasion and occupation and people buy into american culture so government action gets credit as like liberation, even though it's just invasion, destruction and occupation. Right. It just it like then calls in the culture as sort of like the mop up crew. Mm. Yeah. And then it says, look, people love that we're here. <laughs> I mean, I get that's kind of the that's kind of one of the, one of his ideas in Blood and Freedom. I think that's a big part of the book. Yeah, yeah, I would think so, at least from what I've heard him say about it and even from reading his previous book that seems to be where he goes with things in general. Like even in regards to the United States, he talks about different political movements, you know, like for example, he talks about the, the civil liberties or the civil rights leaders who we laud today, like Martin Luther King and he comments like, well, he was a very puritanical person. If you want to see more ground level social change, and I forget the names of the people that he points out, unfortunately, but um, I think he does a really good job in that book of pointing out how the well, what's the what's what you always say? Um, politics, politics is downstream from culture. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. So I think I mean I think that's a part of it. Just back to the progress thing, like politics being downstream from culture. Uh, but that's also like a, a very uh, ominous proposal 
if you look at many aspects of culture, especially with an election coming up, and you look at how culture, especially like entertainment culture, is influencing people's beliefs. Like in many ways, you have these late night talk shows that are almost like a finishing school for what people see on the news, right? Like the news is kind of just peddling a lot of bullshit and controversy on things that really aren't important. But then that stuff gets accentuated by like Jimmy uh, Kimmel or Stephen Colbert. And then people laugh about it. And the laughter kind of it has this binding effect like, oh, laugh at the, you know, uh, like here's jokes about why these people are bad and how we're better and how we're smarter. Like if you can laugh at people, you're obviously better than they are. And, and it, like it becomes more ingrained that way. So there's like that problem, too. So you could there, – there have been plenty of trends throughout the 20th century where culture had a positive influence um, and negative influence. But now it seems like people with a very different vision of America than yours or mine or you know, <laughs> many like decent upstanding people are really working hard to control more and more of the culture and um, more and more of the influences – they're going to younger and younger audiences. So that's, you know, that's uh, a, a, a double-edged sword culture being uh, upstream from politics, I would say. Yeah, for sure. It reminds me of the Puritans, or at least the Puritanism that's existed in this country and throughout the world, where, you know, it's very important. I'm speaking from the Puritan point of view. Even though... Freedom of expression, for example, and of speech is very important. It's equally important for us to have standards to go by. So even though you can say anything, there are certain things you just know not to say. And that, so that would be the culture aspect. Even though theoretically in the political universe, you can say whatever you want, a well-cultured person just would never think to say there shouldn't be a government or whatever else. Um, right. You know, obviously expands into the world of art, of media production in general. So that's another thing about the Enlightenment um, that maybe we could discuss is they talk a lot about you know, freedom of expression, freedom of religion, X, Y, and Z. But at least looking at the sample of men who were most prominent in the Enlightenment, there doesn't seem to be all that much diversity like there seems to be a sort of cultured homogeneity between the major enlightened thinkers that they had a certain perception of what it meant to be a philosopher what it meant to be cultured what it meant to be worth listening to i suppose so yes they talked about freedom and but but how open to it behaviorally and culturally were they or were they just concerned with political rights quote unquote i don't know the answer to that question I don't either. Um, and obviously, like, freedom is a wobbly kind of word, too. Yeah. Right. Like, I mean, pick pick the three people that use the word freedom at that time. I mean, just name any three. All right. Um, Jefferson. Weishaupt. And. Locke. Locke. OK. So there's three three different countries. Right. Yeah. Three entirely different stories uh, of – I mean Jefferson is using the word freedom quite liberally while owning um, a couple hundred people. Yep. 
Weishaupt's talking about being subsumed by pressures where not, like monarchy or theocracy. Like, you and I don't really know what it's like to live under a monarchy or a theocracy. Right. Locke is, I mean, Locke probably has a lot of the same, uh, you know, British class society, you know, it's things that might not be as palpable in the United States. So what they're trying to get free from or what they think the limits of freedom are probably only loosely related. Like we like non-freedom would get to a point where you, me, Locke, Weishaupt, Jefferson would all agree, right? Yeah. Like locked in a cage is not, but somebody would go finally freedom from responsibility, freedom from uh, being forced or expected to do things. What can I do? I'm locked in a cage, right? So it's a, it's a nebulous, wobbly kind of word, right? Like political liberty is a more specific Okay. word yeah. right yes but even in each of those places it means a different thing it's responding or looking to deal with different types of impositions it's an odd thing to contend with when you think of it like okay you've got the political liberty that states that you will not be thrown in a cage or beheaded if you say there is no god but Everybody's going to look at you really funny and, you know, nobody's going to like you because, I mean, this let's, I'm just making a very hypothetical example here. You're, the society expects you to believe in God, even though you're not legally obligated to. And the school system that exists entrains with everybody that not only is there a God, but if you don't believe in one, you're wrong. So right. creates a culture, a, a sort of monoculture in that regard. And so even if you have the political liberty to deny the existence of God, you're still faced with the cultural backlash. So it's almost as if in some way there isn't freedom of speech. At least there's not freedom of acceptance. Should right. Oh, absolutely. Should there be? I mean, should people be expected to do like this? This gets into the issue today where, you know, it's not just about tolerance when it comes to people who are putting forward what we might consider to be crazy ideas or whatever. You know, it's, it's fine to tolerate people, but you don't have to like them. Well, what does that say about cultural freedom? Though? I don't know. It's, it's, it's funny because I could see in the first example, the hypothetical one about not believing in God in a society where you're expected to, where it almost sort of counteracts the, the political liberty that you possess. But are there certain things that while they should not be legislated, they should be culturally enforced. Uh, yeah, yeah, I think we're, and that's one of the things that it, it again, double-edged sword. Right now, we're watching cultural enforcement of things that people know they're not going to be able to legislate. Mm -hmm. Right there, there's not going to be like uh, such extensive so-called hate speech laws. I mean, well, I mean, it happened in Canada. Right. It's probably happening in, in various countries in Europe, um, but it's unlikely that's going to happen in the United States. So that like culture is doing the job of forbidding. Now, does anyone roll out the guillotine? Not yet. Right. Not yet. For, for saying certain things. But I mean, you know, you go to a libertarian event and you say the wrong thing and you're going to get looks and you're going to feel pressure not to say those things. Yeah. You yeah. know? 
and maybe that's just part of, I mean, that's how humans are. Maybe, you know, people have ideas and maybe, maybe if we didn't have that, what sort of bland, impassionate world would we live in? I, you know, there's a double-edged sword right there. I mean, if nobody really cared enough to culturally enforce certain ideas that they held dear, then, I mean, what's the point of anything? Yeah. So, I mean, you have the freedom to experience the social consequences of your actions. Yeah, there, there you go. That's a good way of putting it. The way that the political liberty, liberty mediates, or maybe facilitates would be a better word, facilitates the freedom to experience the consequences of your ideas in society would be that you, people can disagree with you all they want, but they're still prohibited from actually forcing you to change your mind by threat of violence. Now, obviously that happens. I mean, people get threatened all the time based on their views, but hmm, I guess in the ideal society, um, that, that would not be legally feasible if there would be a law in an ideal society. I don't know. Hmm, I, this is a very interesting idea. I will, I'm, I'm trying to articulate it just right, and maybe I won't be able to. But it opens up, the political liberty opens up the range of experience. And it allows you to be able to convince or attempt to convince other people, even when the culture is so staunchly against whatever it is you're saying. So getting back to the hypothetical place where you are schooled to believe in God. I can say there is no God and everybody can get really mad at me that I say there is no God, but what they can't do is physically remove me from the society. As like you were saying uh, in that monarchy thing earlier, uh, you can't do that. Can't put me in a cage. They can't kill me. And they can't just tell me I can't write about there not being a God anymore. They cannot buy my book, but they can't not let me print it. And so that Liberty, although the odds might be against me, it at least grants me the chance to start convincing some people, hey, maybe there's no God. And maybe some more people as they begin to present the idea. Right. So it's kind of like a, a freedom of speech war in a way where you're free to do these things. But then their act of freedom of speech could be uh, to say, we're going to organize a boycott, mm -hmm. right? Uh, freedom of uh, which is freedom of First Amendment, freedom of association, freedom of political action. Yeah. Right. Um, we're going to organize a boycott against the guy who says these things. And it's a bummer when it when it happens, uh, because it would just be wonderful if um, instead of like I, I see it being very much a creature of the left to always go after people's money, which reveals a lot of the um, resentful impulses. Right. To to want to see people arrested and punished and penalized financially for the things they think or believe if they don't line up with what I think or believe. Um, but it's freedom of speech, you know, yeah. and I don't I don't love that, but I, I, I wish it would stop. But that's a very uh, it's a very subjective uh, kind of preference. Right. Well, so you so you can say that you want it to stop and you can convince people of reasons why it should stop. But that's about it. And maybe that is the best way of doing things because it doesn't involve force or coercion. Like that really, to me, that seems like a pretty good metric on whether or not something should be 
done in general? I mean, are you initiating force? Are you coercing somebody? I like that. I like that general rule. And to be honest, I like it not because I have particularly studied the, like, let's say the philosophy of anarchism or the philosophy of libertarianism. I have not done a, like a philosophical deep dive into these ideas and considered them, you know, for all their syllogisms and broken down the arguments and does this make sense? Da, 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 da. I haven't really done that. Uh, and so that's why I tend not to speak too much in like positivistic terms as to what my political viewpoints are. Like I don't really identify, I'm not a, I'm not a libertarian in any definitive sense because that would just be, that would be incorrect. I, because it's, I only feel an affinity for these ideas because they emotionally and on a very baseline rational level resonate with me. Um, right. And, it, you know, it's not that I'm avoiding doing the philosophical deep dive. It's just that I, I haven't gotten to it yet. You know, I'm, I'm trying to figure out, you know, well, where is my time best spent? Like when it comes to my research, my learning, my writing. Um, so that's, that, that's a huge part of the reason why I want to start from the very beginning and go through the great books. Um, as, as I mentioned right. before the show, and, and just sort of take in the philosophy as it was presented in the Western world. Um, so that way, when I do finally wind up reading these libertarian or anarcho-capitalist or anarcho-communist, whatever, reading these philosophers, I'll have more of a context rather than just looking to confirm this emotional inclination that I already have. You know, like I want to be an anarchist, like because I'm just all my life, I've felt a visceral dislike for authority, particularly illegitimate authority, you know, the sort of thing that says, because I said so. I don't like that. I've never liked that. But I would be being disingenuous if I said that I had like a perfectly formulated logical reason to be against that. I just react negatively to it. And so I want to avoid just going out, going to a library or whatever, finding the books that look like it will just give me a prepackaged argument that I could keep in my pocket to justify these right. feelings. Right. Yeah, absolutely. We uh, squeezed a lot of fresh juice out of the uh, the idea of progress, right? That's how we got off on this whole conversation. You want to you want to wrap up there for today? Yeah, I think we should. I've got a I've got a another interview at six o'clock. Oh, so, nice. With who? Uh, do you know Tony Ruerink? Uh from the Autonomy Group? Yes. Uh, I, I've seen his name, and I might have interacted with him on Discord. Okay. Yeah, we're actually going to talk about the great books just for a bit. Um, cause he organized a great books group for the first season of autonomy, which at the time I just, I wasn't able to commit to, but now I, I found the time, uh, with the change in my job and everything. Um, now is the time that I'm, I'm finally going to be able to commit to read these books. And so I wanted to talk to him cause I'm going to start a group for the season two of autonomy for anybody who's interested in joining. Uh, and so I just kind of wanted to touch base on him, see if talk about the value of the great books so people can watch this video and maybe be inclined to read them with me if they so choose. Uh, so why are they important? 
and also get some advice from him about running a group like that. Mm. And I bet as you through that undertaking, you'll get a lot of ammo for uh, future conversations. Yes, you know? I think I will. I know. That's awesome. All right, Danny, thanks again for another really terrific exploration. I, I look forward to spending more time in the United States, so to speak, and see where all of this foundation we've laid uh, will take us, even though I already know because I live in it. Technically, I live in it, but I look forward to doing that. Me too. I, once again, really appreciate it. I enjoyed it. This has been our longest one yet. We got a lot out of it. It was great. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Thank you.